preaching God's precious word to you. So if you're new here, as Corey mentioned, my name is Bentley Crawford. I'm on staff here at Palm Vista as the church administrator. And we've been preaching through the book of Acts recently. And so today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it now, whether physically or digitally. If you don't have one, we do have some in the back table back here. And if you don't have one at home, please feel free to keep that for yourself as well. So let's open our Bibles, friends. We believe that here in God's Word is where He speaks to us clearly and authoritatively. And finally, the Scriptures are a precious gift of God to us. So that's why we preach them. So let's read them now. Acts 4, verses 1 to 22. Read with me. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak Of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Amen. Would you pray with me for God's help this morning? Let's pray. Oh God. Lord, I pray, O Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, Lord. I pray that you would anoint my lips, my weak lips, as I preach. As well, would you anoint the ears, Lord, of all who listen. We are all in need of your help. I need help to preach, Lord. My friends need help to listen. Help us, O God. I thank you that you will, Lord, and I pray that you would grant your word to bear fruit in each of us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. Well, friends, I want to tell you a story this morning about a Scottish missionary during the 1800s who I think will be of encouragement to us, particularly in light of our text here in Acts. And this man's name was John Patton. Now, some of you may have heard of him. Uh, he, he wrote an astonishing autobiography where he recounts much of, he did, much of what he did on the mission field. And one thing that makes it particularly amazing is that the island that he ended up spending much of his life on and that he went to bring the gospel to, catch this, was inhabited by tribes of cannibals. That's right, cannibals. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be spending too much time near a person who's a cannibal. I mean, what happens when, you know, it's mealtime? John Patton thought differently. At one point early on, he was contemplating whether he should enroll as a missionary to go to this island or to remain in his present fruitful role where he was in Scotland. And he said this, I felt a growing assurance that this was the call of God to his servant. The whale and the claims of the heathen, that's how he referred to him, to them, were constantly sounding in my ears. I saw them perishing for lack of the knowledge of the true God and his son, Jesus. And then as he sought to move forward with applying for the position of missionary to these islands, he experienced considerable pushback from those who were in Scotland wanting him to stay where he was because he was having a fruitful ministry. And there was this one man who was always challenging him not to leave, and he was constantly saying to him, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And here's how Patton finally responded to him. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They're to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. John Patton was a serious man. He was captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knew that it alone had the power to save others. He was emboldened and constrained to go and preach it because he knew that without it, those people truly had no hope. And he was ready to live and to die for the sake of Jesus and him alone. And he was also emboldened and constrained to go because his overwhelming confidence and the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ to provide for him, to protect him, and to be with him was always on his mind. He was constantly, throughout his biography, recalling the words of Jesus to his disciples before his ascension in Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, 18 through 20 what we know as the Great Commission, where Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, church, I think in our message this morning... Well, I don't think. In in this message this morning, in a similar way, we are going to see the apostles' radical commitment to Jesus as the center of their lives. You see, the coming of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, along with the giving of the Holy Spirit, had massive implications for the apostles. Jesus was now at the center of their lives. They were changed men. So I believe that God's burden for us This morning would be that just as the apostles, John Patton, and countless others have, that we would see and marvel at and be captivated by and have confidence in the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and the supremacy of Jesus and his name alone. So the outline for my message this morning is this. If you put it on the screen, the power and authority of Jesus, number one, emboldens us, and number two, constrains us. So, to begin, we must remember where we've been in Acts. This passage here, it's part of the same story that we were reading from last week that Al preached from in chapter 3. And so remember, Peter and John were on their way to pray at the temple, and they pass a lame man from birth who was looking at them and asking for money. And an amazing scene happens where they look at him and they say to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately, the guy gets up and walks and leaps and praises God and goes into the temple with them. Everyone sees this and is astonished. They gather to Peter and John, which leads Peter to address them all. And we saw how Peter powerfully witnessed to the risen Christ as the one who had healed the man, to the, as the one that uh, so much of the Old Testament was looking forward to, and as the one that they should repent and place their faith in. And I also thought that Al did a great job last week of helping us to step back for a moment and take note of what is in this portrait that Luke is painting for us here in Acts. Asking, question like, asking questions like, Why is Luke highlighting this story? What is God communicating to us through telling these specific stories in the specific ways they are told? And one of the answers is that Luke is showing us the playing out of what happened as a result of Jesus becoming Lord in Christ. The coming of Jesus had huge implications for the old temple system. And so the passage this morning continues that theme. But as last week we saw how Jesus replaces the temple as the center of our lives, this week we see how Jesus replaces the temple authorities as the true power and authority in our lives. So let's get into the first point. Point one, the power and authority of Jesus emboldens us. So read with me Acts 4, verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay, so literally, as Peter and John were in the act of speaking to the crowd, this group of temple authorities came upon them. There was a great suddenness to their arrival, and they are described here as being greatly annoyed. It's as if a report of what was happening was, had reached them wherever they were, and in anger and frustration, they got together, hustled over them, burst on the scene, swooped in, shut it down, and arrested them. Now, why would they do this? Well, think of it like this. My daughter, Lila Grace, she's two and a half years old. She's been having trouble with bad dreams lately. So we've been talking to her about how now, you know, we're here to protect her. She's safe. Jesus is powerful. We've also tried not to talk to her too much about monsters. We don't even want to initiate the thought in her mind. And so this would be like me coming home one day to a friend babysitting her, and I walk in to discover the babysitter wearing a monster mask and telling her all these scary monster stories. My initial reaction would probably be to want to run in and tackle them and scold them for doing this. Because, look, I don't want anyone talking to her about monsters. And then what's worse, what if she actually believes them? Think of the damage that would cause, how much that would mess up. In a similar way, I think these Jewish leaders were afraid of what might happen. Politically, they couldn't have any unauthorized people teaching the masses, especially people proclaiming things about a Messiah and a resurrection. This kind of stuff was revolutionary. It could lead to riots and all kinds of bad things. 
it had in the past. And this kind of stuff could mess up their relationship with Rome. But then theologically, the Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection at all. They just believed that the soul died with the body, and that was it. So they were certainly against anyone teaching about a resurrection, but especially about one that had happened in the middle of history. And that, in Jesus, the very one that they had crucified, the very one whose body they hadn't found, and the very one who they had uh, paid people off to keep quiet about. They had killed this man, Jesus. They hated him. They had seen his popularity and success with the people, and they wanted it stamped out. So they swooped in, arrested the apostles, and put them in prison, or put them in holding until they could have a hearing the next day. So what we see here is the old temple authorities asserting their power. Yet, here in the very midst of this power grab by this Jewish leadership SWAT team, we see how vain their efforts will ultimately be. For just as though Jesus was killed, God raised him, Look at what it says happened in verse 4, even as they clamped down on the apostles. Read it with me. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Oh, friends, stand amazed at this. Though they were trying to stamp out this Jesus movement, to shut it down, they were coming up against a power and authority much greater than their own. Church, I think God wants us this morning to see the power and authority of Jesus to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I think he wants us to see this morning the unstoppable power of the gospel message to save sinners. Friends, let this be your confidence this morning. The unstoppable power and authority of Jesus emboldens us because we know it. we cannot be stamped out. The gospel message will spread. People will believe No matter what happens, whether our religious liberties be trampled, whether our friends, family, neighbors turn on us in hatred of the gospel message, they are coming up against an unstoppable power, the unstoppable power and authority of Jesus Christ, who in his great sovereignty is actually using their evil intentions for his ultimately good purposes. Praise God. So the apostles were arrested and they were held overnight. Yet many believed and were converted. And so here's what happens the next day. Read with me verses 5 through 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So Peter and John are brought in and set in the middle of this intimidating group called the Sanhedrin, which was basically the Senate and the Supreme Court for the Jewish nation. So just imagine this for a second with me. They were brought into this meeting hall somewhere near the temple, There are at least 71 leading Jewish men sitting in there in a semicircle with with elevated seats looking down on where the apostles are standing as they go to try them. The people there were the rulers, the elders, and the scribes, which would have included members of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and then members of the high priestly family, the two prominent being Annas and Caiaphas. Now, If you're starting to think, hey, that sounds a little familiar, well, it does. For this was the very same group 
that had tried Jesus just months earlier and had numerous confrontations with him. The same men who had decided that they must find some way to kill him and who had bribed Judas to turn Jesus over. The same men who, when they finally officially tried him, were not seeking truth and justice, but were seeking to catch him in whatever way possible so that they could have him killed by the Romans. The same men who had stirred up the crowds to demand Barabbas be released and to chant, crucify him, about Jesus. It was these men that they were set in the midst of. Now, most people who were tried by the Sanhedrin showed up in repentance, apologizing for whatever they had done. But that is not how Peter and John were conducting themselves here. And so the Sanhedrin asked them this question, By what name or by what power did you do this? Now, I have to imagine that the leaders knew exactly the name they were teaching and healing in. It was one of the reasons they were so annoyed in the first place. I think that they wanted, in this official setting, to either force them to acknowledge their association with Jesus or to get them to back down or renounce their faith and apologize. And from our vantage point, the strategy might not have been such a bad idea. I mean, look who we have here as the representative Christian. It was Peter. This is the same Peter who the night before that very Sanhedrin meeting where Jesus was tried instead of them, this was the Peter who was denying Jesus three times. And now here he is, being tried in front of the same group. Can you imagine? But look at how Peter responds. Read with me verses 8 through 10. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, And elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So first, as Peter steps out in faith, To testify to Jesus, what does it say? He is filled with the Holy Spirit and given the words to say. I think that was the difference maker. And so initially, he basically points out how backwards this trial seems. It's not a crime they were on trial for. It's for a good deed done to a crippled man. Who can be against that? But then further... And then further, Peter explains, he answers them plainly by telling them that it was indeed in the name of Jesus Christ that this man was healed and stood before them well. But then he keeps going into what turns into an amazing defense turned mini sermon where he again bears witness to Jesus and basically gives them the gospel message and implies that they themselves can respond and repent. And receive salvation. Out of all of his speeches, in this one, he is speaking directly to those who are most responsible for the death of Jesus. And so he highlights clearly for them the stark contrast between their judgment of Jesus and God's judgment of him. When he says in verse 10, look at it. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom... You crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. And then he really brings it home as he quotes from the Old Testament in the next verse. He quotes from Psalm 118.22. In that actual psalm, it says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But look here. Peter fills in the blanks. In terms of his ultimate fulfillment, he says in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he he finishes here in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name 
under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. So I want you to see something here. In verse 9, where it said, where Peter had said, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? The Greek word there behind the word for healed is the same words that's used here in verse 12 for salvation. This man was saved from his physical lameness that he had had from birth by the name of Jesus Christ. And his physical healing is a sign of the greater spiritual reality of salvation from our lifelong birth defect of sin that has rendered us spiritually dead from birth. Peter is saying, you think the healing of this man was a miracle? Jesus came to perform much greater miracles than this. He came to raise dead men to life. And what's more, Jesus is the only one who can do it. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way this man could have been healed. And there's no other hope for you. So how does this hit home for us? Well, for one, we can ask ourselves this question. Who are you looking to for salvation? Are you looking to yourself and your own good works? Maybe you don't even think you need salvation. Or are you maybe you're getting a little closer. Maybe you're simply trusting that God is merciful and he'll just kind of let you into heaven. Listen, God is merciful and he does demand good works. But both of these things will not save you. It is calling explicitly on the name of Jesus Christ alone that will save you, friends. It's looking to this man, this God-man alone, that will bring salvation. So if you have not explicitly called on the name of Jesus for salvation, I plead with you, please do so. Repent. Believe the gospel. Call on the name of Jesus. He alone can save. And listen, He will save you when you call on His name. And for those of you who have looked to Jesus for salvation, but maybe your eyes have wandered recently. Your vision of Him has become blurry or all your spiritual priorities seem mixed up. Let this passage be a wake-up call to help you center your attention back on the cornerstone of our faith. Rivet your attention on the Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out. Read His Word. Preach the Gospel to yourself. Meditate on Him. Tell others about Him. Rivet yourself on Jesus. Return to the center. And secondly question we can ask ourselves is this. Who are you trusting your life with? Who are you trusting your life with? Do you trust that the King Jesus has your very life in his hands? Peter obviously trusted and knew that though these Jewish men stood over him in judgment, that nothing would happen except exactly what the Lord Jesus had ordained to happen. Listen to one story that the missionary I told you about earlier, John Patton, recounts here. When, as frequently happened to him, it's amazing, a group of these cannibals from a local tribe just decided to try and kill him and his fellow missionary. Listen to what he says. It's amazing. They, the cannibals, this tribe, encircled us in a deadly ring. And one kept urging another to strike the first blow or fire the first shot. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw Him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized 
that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the box or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. John Patton was emboldened by the power and authority of Jesus Christ over all things to continue to seek the salvation of these cannibals on this island. Jesus holds your life in his hands. No one else does. Nothing will be done to you or taken from you apart from his permission. Sadly, though, today, many would reject this daring in the name of Jesus because they don't think that his is the only name that can save. I even met an Italian Roman Catholic priest once in our time in Italy who was going to be headed back to the Philippines as a missionary. And he told me that instead of telling them about Jesus, he was going to be urging the Muslims there to be sincere and true to their own religion. He thought that in the end, if they were faithful to whatever they believed, that they would be somehow saved in Jesus, though they never actually knew him. Friends, no one will be saved apart from explicitly calling on the name of Jesus for salvation and no other. Peter and John were emboldened by this. And their boldness was evident to all who heard them. Read with me verses 13 and 14. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Shouldn't we be emboldened too as we see this? I don't know about you, but I can often be the opposite of bold. I can be quite timid when it comes to speaking about Jesus, whether it's around family, neighbors, or strangers. I'm often more concerned about my own comfort or reputation than I am about telling people about the only thing that truly matters. It's like I forget that Jesus is on his throne, building his church. I forget the unstoppable power of the gospel message. I forget about his ability to save. But listen, you and I can do this. We can do it. Peter and John weren't highly trained professionals. They were uneducated, common men. And listen to this. The same Jesus who they had encountered and the same spirit that had so changed them is the Jesus that we have met. And the spirit who is in us, knowing Jesus, having his spirit and knowing his word, listen, is worth far more than all the world's training and wisdom. We can do this. So the power and authority of Jesus emboldens us. But it also constrains us. So that brings us to the second point. Point two, the power and authority of Jesus constrains us. Read with me verses 15 to 22. But when they had commanded them to leave the council... They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, 
Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So, after being really taken aback by the boldness of Peter uh, uh, and the straightforward wisdom of Peter and John, uh, and then seeing the formerly crippled man just standing there, healed, uh, the Sanhedrin decided it was time to take a step back and talk things over for a moment. So they asked him to leave the room. And they're in a bit of a dilemma. They don't want the teaching of Jesus to spread any further. They don't want these men talking to anyone else. However, they don't really have much ground to charge them on. And Peter did have a point, after all. They are on trial, not for a crime, but for a good deed done to a crippled man. And then for explaining to people who was responsible for it. So the leaders ask, here in verse 16, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. So they're facing here the same problem that they had had with Jesus. The people were praising God because of the miraculous healing. Many were responding to the gospel message. However, they weren't about to bow down and let them succeed. So once again, they assert their power. And their firm commitment to try to stamp out this movement, they decide to warn them to not speak at all again in the name of Jesus. Look what it says, verses 17 and 18. But in order that it spread, may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They warned them, i.e. threatened them, to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I wonder what they actually thought would happen. Perhaps they thought they could just intimidate them into silence. I don't know. But let me ask you this question. What would you do if someone told you not to speak or teach anymore to anyone in the name of Jesus? First, would that even change your life that much? Would being told to no longer speak at all in the name of Jesus alter much for you? Is the name of Jesus something that is on your mind and coming out of your mouth and out of your fingertips each day and each week as you interact with people verbally, face-to-face or on the phone or, or via the written word, via email or Facebook or whatever? And then secondly, if you were actually told this, what would be your reaction? I mean, honestly, just take a moment and ask yourself, how precious is Jesus to me? How would I respond if faced with an order such as this? Friends, what I want you to see in this point is that the power and authority of Jesus constrains us to continue to speak in His name because we cannot but do so. We cannot not speak of Him. We cannot not speak up regarding Jesus or speak out proclaiming His name because we have met this God-man. When the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to His glory and gave us faith in Him, because we've been so changed by Him and know there is no other name that anyone can find salvation in, because we know He's able to protect us from our worst enemies and advance His message even in our imprisonment and death, we cannot but speak His name. The power and authority of Jesus constrains us to do so. And that is exactly what we see with Peter and his response to their threats and demands. Look with me at verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. 
Peter and John answer their warnings plainly. And I think respectfully. They basically put the ball back in their court by asking them to judge in this matter whether it's right for Peter and John to listen to God instead of to them. Now, even though they may have wanted to, there's no way that they were going to answer that bluntly and simply and say, oh, you must listen to us rather than to God. They're not going to say that. And Peter's basically telling them, look, men, we mean all respect to you, but there is an authority at work here that supersedes yours. And if your, warn- your, if your war- warnings and his commands contradict one another, then we must listen to him rather than to you. And so he says in verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I.e., we aren't going to listen to you, but we are going to continue to speak in the name of Jesus. And so after threatening them further, the Sanhedrin let them go, unable to reply, unable to punish them. You see, Peter and John were constrained by what they had seen and heard in and from Jesus. They had to speak about Him. So no matter what they faced, whether warnings, threats, persecutions, imprisonments, or even death, they could not keep silent. They were going to continue speaking. And please take note. They weren't throwing raunchy curses at the Sanhedrin. They weren't yelling at them or seeking to get in a fight. They were in humble confidence and respectfully disobeying them because they could do no other. Now, when it comes to this word constraint here, point two, I think many of us can feel a constraining of sorts. But often, it's by our fear of men and our flesh to be unwilling to speak of Christ, timid to share the gospel. Instead of experiencing this holy constraint that the apostles did, unable to but speak of Christ, we can experience this ungodly constraint of being willing to speak of everything else but Christ. Dear friends, first, if you are feeling that way, don't worry. You aren't alone. You aren't alone. I'd venture to guess that almost all of us have experienced that. And you know what? It's okay. But let's not stay there. Let's freely admit our weaknesses to God. We're weak people and to one another and to work for change here. And then secondly, if we are feeling this way, it's because we're having a crisis of where to look for the ultimate power and authority in our lives. If we are feeling unwilling and unable to speak the gospel, then one reason is because the power and authority of Jesus is looming distant blurry or or small in our sight. And the power and authority of the world or of other people or our need to be liked or feel comfortable or whatever is looming large. Look, it's like this. If I stick my hand in front of my face right here as I'm talking to you and then I'm looking out towards the back of the auditorium here and then I alternate focusing my eyes here on my hand and then back to the back of the auditorium, one of them, if I'm looking at my hand, is becoming crisp and clear and in focus And what's in the back is blurry, and it happens the other way as well. You see, the world, its worries, and everything else in it, and whatever else it is that you can vest with authority and power instead of Jesus, it's like my hand right here. It's right in front of our faces. It's all around us. By default, it's going to consume our vision and be what we focus on. And all the things of God will be blurry. But I believe that this passage is calling us to remember that there is more to life than all those things that can loom so large for us. There's a greater power and authority out there that this passage is calling us, as Nathan said, to lift up our eyes to and focus our attention on. 
And so as we focus our attention on Jesus, so as we take our eyes off of the things that are right in front of our faces and begin looking at Jesus, the things of the world begin to grow dimmer and dimmer and the power and the authority and the beauty of Jesus begins to go brighter and brighter and brighter until it consumes our vision and it constrains us to where we cannot but speak of him. We no longer fear anyone or anything else because we have finally seen him rightly in all his glorious power and authority and has put all these little fickle things of the world in their proper perspective. Friends, Jesus is a real person. He is really God who really came and really died as a human. He really rose again and he is really sitting exalted at the Father's right hand even right now. Let's fill our eyes with his glory. And let's let the refrain, the refrain of that old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Be ours. Let me read it for you. It says this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now at this point, Some of you might wonder, oh, this is really great stuff, Bentley. But let's face it, we're not all apostles of the early church here. We're not that John Patton guy you mentioned earlier taking the gospel to the cannibals. Most of us will continue on with our lives, going to our jobs each day, taking care of our children, going to school, etc. There's nothing wrong with that. So how can we live up to all of this? Well, I have two answers for you. First, you could consider how God might be calling you to be a missionary. Let me be clear. I don't think God is calling us all to be foreign missionaries. However, he may call some of us at some point. But what's more, you don't have to go overseas to be a missionary. We've mentioned this before, but Miami has one of the lowest percentages of evangelical presence in the nation just as low as many countries in the Middle East. You are already in a foreign land in that regard. So we might consider how God is calling us to boldly proclaim His gospel right here in Miami. Amen. Secondly, think for a moment about where it is that you spend the majority of your week, of your time each week. Where is it? I'd venture to guess that it's at your job or school and at your home. Church, here is our mission field. Now, as for our homes, and for you parents and future parents here, let me encourage you with another quote from John Patton. Because we have to remember that the forging of great missionaries or ministers of the gospel doesn't happen in a vacuum. Patton himself didn't just pop out of thin air and drop down onto this island. His parents played a crucial role in his life. Listen as Patton recounts some of his memories from his childhood of his dad and how he prayed for them. He says this, Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of my memory, were blotted out from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. That's where his dad would go to pray in their house. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with a victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why may not I? How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain nor could any stranger understand when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal and domestic need. 
we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love Him as our divine friend. Don't you love that? John Patton's father and mother themselves weren't missionaries, had a profound impact on his life. Friends, our first missionary field is our very homes. Now, I, I know it sounds much simpler than it is, but may God grant us to lift high the name of Jesus in our words and actions with our children, with our spouses, as well as our extended family. And then our jobs. Let us not be ashamed or afraid to reach out to our coworkers, to befriend them, to get to know them. Let us not shrink back from mentioning the name of Jesus to them. You never know what he is up to. And he has the authority and power to save even them. And listen, though we are called to testify verbally to the name of Jesus, let's remember that there can be much more to the picture than that. We can pray for our co-workers. We can love them and conduct our work, uh, to conduct ourselves at work in such a faithful and respectful way that we are leaving behind an attractive scent of the aroma of Jesus Christ. So that when we have those conversations with those people, they know you've got something that they don't, because you are a different person. You've met the Savior, and you've been changed. Friends, Jesus has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. His name alone can save. And so this knowledge should embolden us to preach the gospel And it should constrain us to be unable to stop. May God grant it among us. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up and we'll sing praises to our great God. Oh God, Lord, we praise you and thank you. Oh Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to see, Lord, with increasing clarity, His awesome and unstoppable power and authority. I pray, O God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to boldly speak of Jesus to one another, to our family members, to our co-workers, to anyone you would have us to. I pray that you would grant us to experience that holy constraint where we cannot but speak of Jesus, no matter what the cost. Oh God, I know I desperately need your help here. I pray that you would grant us to do so, Lord, with a profound love and compassion patterned after the very love and compassion that you have shown towards us, your enemies, now made your children. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.